turn with me to the book of Exodus, the church Bibles at the back. Um, we read in the first two verses of Exodus 20. Let's pray though before we read God's words. I'll be praying using the words of Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoice in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great rewards. Almighty God, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. We're continuing with our series in Exodus, coming to one of the most famous passages in the Bible, and one that will be familiar to many of you. I'll be reading the first two verses, the prologue to the Ten Commandments. And then we'll take a week each on each commandment. And whether you've studied the commandments many times or not, I think you'll find with me there is much more to learn. So hear God's words. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Strictly speaking, the Ten Commandments are not actually called the Ten Commandments anywhere in the Bible. But there are three passages in Scripture where they're referred to as the Ten Words. And they often are translated and we know them as the Ten Commandments. But it is the Ten Words, and therefore sometimes this section is called the Decalogue. Deca is Greek for ten, and Logos, as we well know, is the word for words. So there are the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. But the problem is not what you call them. The problem is the problem of the human heart that we would rather not have God tell us what to do. Um, I said it a couple of weeks ago. God said, let, you know, let us make man in our own image. And we've been trying to return the favour ever since. But there was a story on CNN, I, I googled it this last week in 2014, and I quote from CNN, it's not something I often do. Uh, what if instead of climbing Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from God, Moses turned to the Israelites and said, hey guys, what do you think we should do? If in our own enlightened age, we're perfectly capable of crowdsourcing our own Ten Commandments. Or at least that is what a new project would have us believe. Um, so Lex Bayer, an executive in Airbnb, and John Figdor, a humanist chaplain, if there is such a thing, at Stanford University, delivered their own ten non-commandments in a book they rewrote they called Atheist Heart, Human and Humanist Mind. And they entered at the ten non-commandments contest where atheists were asked to list modern alternatives to the Decalogue. And if it helped boost atheist public image, all the better, Bayer said. 
If they lack faith in the divine, the atheist non-commandments display a robust faith in humankind because Silicon Valley has replaced Sinai. So here are the ten non-commandments. Here are the ten commandments, which was voted for by the people. Number one, be open-minded and be willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. Number two, strive to understand what is most likely to be true, not believe what you wish to be true. Third, the scientific method is the most reliable way of understanding the natural earth. Four, every person has a right to control their body. Five, God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a, to live a fallen, meaningful life. Six, be mindful of the consequences of your actions and recognise you must take responsibility for them. Seven, treat others as you would want them to treat you and can reasonably expect them to want to be treated. Where have we heard that before? Um, number eight, we've had the we have the responsibilities to consider others, including future generations. Number nine is the best of all. There is no one right way to live. And number ten, leave the world a better place than you found it. Now, it sounds about right. Not what I consider right at all, but what you would guess an internet contest would come up with the Ten Non-Commandments. Some of them kind of make common sense. But when you just examine them more than just hear them, I hope you would find the ridiculousness of them, the contradictions of them, and the stupidity of them. Because the main point is to say that God has nothing to do with ethical guidelines. They would insist you can be good without God, yet they quote from Jesus, the golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for that is the law and the prophets. They talk about the scientific method being the way to truth, completely misunder, you know, mis, you know, revisionist memory that the scientific me method began with Francis Bacon and it owed much of its popularity to Scottish Presbyterians who found it not so much of a way to look at the natural world but observe the created order that God had before us. They're logically indefensible. They're called non-commandments, which is an oxymoron if you've ever heard one. Even the heading, the Ten Non-Commandments, it sounds very virtuous, very woke, very nice, very soft, very fluffy, very politically correct, the non-commandments. But every single one of them comes at you with an aggressive moral force. And the ninth non-commandment is the most laughable of them all because you've got all of these non-commandments. The scientific method is the most natural way of understanding the natural world. Every person has the right to control their own body. We have the responsibility to consider others, including future generations, leave the world a better place than you found it. And then there is no one right way to live. So either that's true or the others are, but you can't have both. Because if, you can't, if, you, if you're going to give nine non-commandments, the tenth can't be, well, whatever. You know, whatever. You know, they want their cake and eat it as well. Now, I know that the contest was a publicity stunt for the book, but the, but the authors seemed to think it was a good way to discover a, a moral code is to gain the wisdom of the crowds. I quote, Bayer said humans are hardwired for compassion and the scientific method and the wisdom of crowds are the tribes that gather online each day weed out bad ideas. 
In other words, this is an open-ended and progressive process. So his idea was throw it out to the internet and the internet weeds out bad ideas because that is what the internet does best. It weeds bad ideas. Uh, not that, I think it promotes bad ideas. But, you know, but one thing that I had came across last week and I almost said it on Thursday night was, do you remember when the government decided that they would throw it open to the internet to rename the 250 million polar research vessel? Do you remember that? You must remember that. And they thought that the good old British public would come up with names like Shackleton, Endeavour, Endurance, Falcon, Explorer. That's what they expected. Because the great British public are so good. And you remember what the runaway winner was? Boaty McBoatface. You remember Boaty McBoatface? And you kind of have to kind of love our sense of humour a little bit. But the government then decided that the wisdom of crowds wasn't so great after all, so they called it number five. They went all the way down to number five and called it Sir David Attenborough. So sometimes crowdsourcing, sometimes the wisdom of crowds is not so wise after all. But we come to the way to live, which is the Ten Commandments. And we'll come to the first commandment next week. But I want to answer two questions in our time together this morning, why we should study the Ten Commandments and why we should obey the Ten Commandments. Why we should study them and why we should obey them. I have five answers to both questions and if you're a mathematician I make ten points but I'd like to say it's the ten words before the ten words, the Decalogue before the Decalogue. So why study the Ten Commandments? Five reasons. Number one, people are ignorant of the Ten Commandments. That's why we should study them. People are largely ignorant of the Ten Commandments. Churches used to recite them. Many churches do not. They're not read as part of Lord's Day worship. I snuck it in there today, of course. But um, in many churches, they don't instruct their children anymore in the Ten Commandments. Children don't have to memorise the Ten Commandments. I, I had to grow it up, memorise the Ten Commandments. How many of us on the spot, I'm not going to put anyone on the spot, could recite them? Verbatim. In other words, people do not know the Ten Commandments like they used to. There was a study in the United States. 80% of respondents knew that two beef patties are part of the Big Mac. You probably know that as well, if you eat McDonald's. But only 50% could identify thou shalt not kill was one of the Ten Commandments. And that's not even a hard one, is it? 25% of those surveyed could name all seven ingredients of the Big Mac. I'm not going to te test you on that one. But 25%, but 14% listed the Ten Commandments. So 25% of those surveyed could list everything in the Big Mac, but only 14% could recite the Ten Commandments. So we are ignorant of them. Probably be even worse here. We probably wouldn't even get, we probably even would get fish and chips right, you know what I mean? But anyway, but it's no exaggeration to say that these ten rules have been the most influential law code ever given. Simply in our interest in world history, let alone Western history, we all acknowledge the significance of the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 4 verse 6, keep them and do them, 
For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. People have gone back to the Ten Commandments that were given by God on Mount Sinai to the children of Israel, but yet today we're largely ignorant of them. So that's why we should study them, number one. Number two, we should study them because the Ten Commandments have been at the centre of the church's instruction for God's people for, for hundreds of years, especially for new believers and children. For centuries, church's instructions have centred on three things. For centuries, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments. You know, that, that has been the centre of teaching new believers and children. What do we want children to know? What do we want our children to know? Well, the Apostles' Creed covers up, you know, our faith. Our state, it, it, it's a way of stating our faith. The Lord's Prayer, because the Lord told us how to pray. And the Ten Commandments. If you want to have the basics of the Christian faith, you need to be grounded in those three things. I went through some of the catechisms and, and creeds of the Church, including the Catholic Church even. But in the Heidelberg, which we know, 11 of the 52 Lord's Days are the Ten Commandments. 11 out of 52. The Westminster Shorter Catechism has 107 questions, 107, 42 are about the Ten Commandments. So across the spectrum, across the whole spectrum of creeds and confessions, the Ten Commandments are at the centre of how we instruct the Lord's people. Number three, the Ten Commandments are central to the ethics of the Mosaic Covenant. In your Bible, it is God, it is Yahweh, it is Jehovah speaking these words directly to the people and not through Moses as his intermediary. Uh, God spoke all these words. It's a fearful thing. God has been speaking. Moses, you go down, you tell the people of this, come up and tell me that. Moses was the intermediary between God and the people, but here Yahweh speaks these words to them directly. Verse 19, and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And as God is speaking these words directly, it underlines the importance of the Decalogue. It underlines the importance of the Ten Commandments. In fact, the language of verse 2 I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, which echoes the words to Abraham in Genesis 15, I am the Lord who brought you out of, from Ur of the Chaldeans. So we know something big is happening. Just like God said to Abraham, he says the same words now to the people at Sinai. And there are a number of factors that set the Ten Commandments a part in their significance. God is speaking to them directly. But the scene we saw last week in chapter 19, descending on the mountain with great smoke and deep darkness and thunder. The Ten Commandments are coming in this unique way because they will be foundational principles for the people of God, for God's people, the children of Israel. So the Ten Commandments were central to the ethical life of God's Old Testament people, the children of Israel. And fourthly, the Ten Commandments not only are central to the Old Testament, they're central to the ethics of the New Covenant. 
The, the relationship with the law is different under the new covenant. But if we look at just a few verses, we understand the Ten Commandments played a central role in the life of New Testament church. Mark 10, 17-22. We know it well. And as Jesus was setting out, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. And he said to them, Teacher, all of these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing, go sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Disheartened, he went away sorrowful. Jesus isn't agreeing with the assumption that the rich man can keep the commandments or that he can earn inheritance to eternal life. But Jesus engages with the man. You know what it is to be a good, good person? And he lists the commandments. In Jesus' in Jesus's mind, when he gave a convenient summary of what it meant to be a follower of God, he used the Ten Commandments. He set in a trap for the young man. The only commandment Jesus doesn't mention at the second table of the law, which are commandments 5 through 10, is do not covet. Jesus quoted 5, 6, 7, 8 and 9, and the rich man said, yeah, I'm doing that. And Jesus said, there's one more. And he got at the coveting commandment by way of his possession. You lack one thing. That was Jesus. He used the Ten Commandments. Paul used the Ten Commandments. Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Paul is saying, if you want to love one another, keep the commandments. If you want to know what it is to keep the commandments, love one another. So as New Testament, New Covenant Christians, it isn't that the Ten Commandments do, do not matter. Paul says to Timothy, now we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. Paul is saying that the law is meant to convict us of sin. That's on the one hand, but Paul says it can be used lawfully. And he quotes from the Ten Commandments. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, that's the Fifth Commandment. For murderers, that's the Sixth Commandment. The sexual immorality, men who practice homosexuality, that's the Seventh Commandment. Enslavers, the Eighth Commandment, liars, perjurers, the Ninth Commandment, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. The point is, when Paul gives ethical advice, his default mode is the Ten Commandments. And while he doesn't mention them explicitly, he gave clear examples of breaking examples 5, 6, 7, 8 and 9. Now, according to the Jewish traditions, you've probably heard this before, there are 613 commandments in the Mosaic Covenant. 613, one way of summarising it is 10, and if you want to summarise it further, you go to 2, which is what Jesus does. So you have the 613, you have the 10 or the 2, 
The two mean you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and your mind and your neighbour as yourself. Love is the fulfilment of the law. Not to erase the Ten Commandments, but to find its fullest and deepest expression. Jesus said, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. We're not under the curse of the law. We're not under the Mosaic Covenant in the way that Israel was. It's been superseded by the New Covenant. But we have the Ten Commandments. And as we see from our Lord Jesus, and as we see from Paul, it's a summary of what it means to obey and worship God. You've probably heard of the three uses of the law. To restrain wickedness, to convict us of sin, and what Calvin called the principal purpose, to learn the Lord's will. So the law is to restrain wickedness. The law is to convict us of sin and lead us to the cross. And the law is there to show us what it means to live as the Lord's people. So we see the Ten Commandments. Yeah, it's central to, to the children of Israel, but it's central in the New Testament as well, and it's central for us. And the fifth reason of why we should study the Ten Commandments is the law is good. Romans 7 verse 12, the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. C.S. Lewis wrote an essay on Psalm 1, Psalm 1 verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night, and he reflected, it sounds strange, we don't think that way. We delight in God's mercy, correct? We delight in the promises of the Lord and the rescue of the Lord. But why would the psalmist say, I delight in the law of the Lord? We see laws as bad things. Commandments weigh us down. But the psalmist said, I delight in the law of the Lord. C.S. Lewis said it's like finding sturdy, level ground after taking a shortcut that has gone astray. We don't think very often how much our lives would be better if the Ten Commandments were followed and obeyed. Just think about it with me just for a moment. What a life we would live in if everyone followed the Ten Commandments. Just think about it. We wouldn't have to have locks. We wouldn't have to have security codes. We would save a lot of money in software. We wouldn't have to have copyright laws, patent laws, intellectual property rights. We wouldn't have to worry about contracts. Your word would be your bond. If the Ten Commandments were obeyed, we would be in paradise. So of course we delight in the law of the Lord. Sometimes people talk about how they don't like absolute truth and how much better life would, but think about how much better life would be if we followed the Ten Commandments. No prisons, no courts. I really hesitate to say the next thing, no lawyers, because some of my favourite people in all the world are lawyers. I'm looking at two right here. But life would be love and harmony together. The law is good, and that's why we study the Ten Commandments. It is good. And let me give you five reasons why we should obey them. The law is good. I've given you five reasons why we should study them. I'm trying to give you five reasons why we should obey them. 
And this is important because when we come to the Ten Commandments, if we have the wrong motivation or the wrong end, we'll end up with a wrong kind of religion. A religion says, I obey the commandments, therefore God loves me. That's not the answer. We obey the Ten Commandments because of who we are. Number one, because of who we are. In Exodus 19, verse 6 says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The same language is used in 1 Peter 2. What is true of God's old covenant people is true of his new covenant people. We are set apart. We are a special people. We are a chosen people. We're to be holy, prepared to stand alone, and prepared to live in a way that the world thinks is laughable or worse. That's what it means to be the people of God. God says, this is who you are as my people. So we obey the Ten Commandments because of who we are. Secondly, we obey the Ten Commandments because of who God is. Because of who God is. I am the Lord, your God. Yahweh, in capital letters, the covenant name of God. The great I am. The God who appeared to Moses out of the burning bush. The God of the plagues. The God of the Red Sea. The God who says, do you want to know who I am? I am who I am. This sovereign, self-existent, self-sufficient, almighty God. And why why are we here this morning? To worship him. To worship him. And each of us, we need to decide, is there a God or not? We can't decide whether he exists. He exists. But we have to answer that crisis in our own hearts. Is there a God? And if there is a God, is he the God of the Bible? Because if there is a God, and if God is God who descended on Mount Sinai in smoke and flame and fire... How could we possibly think that the internet is a good way of deciding how we should live? Do you not think that we should listen to that God? Do we not think that we should obey God? And more than that, this really struck me this week. The law law is the expression of the lawgiver's heart and character. The law shows us what is important to God. The law shows us what God is like. It gives a reflection of his moral perfection. So when people say, I'm a Christian, but the commandments and the laws give me a break. They're just begrudging about it, which reflects an attitude which says, I am not interested in who God is. I'm not interested in getting to know this God. The Ten Commandments are not there to make our lives miserable. Your parents don't tell you to do things to make your lives miserable. The Ten Commandments reflect the very nature and character of Almighty God himself. Thou shalt not murder. Why? Because God is love. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Why? Because God is faithful. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Why? Because God is truth. Don't you see how they reflect 
the character of God. We cannot just thumb our noses at the Ten Commandments without saying to God, I don't want to know who you are. So we obey because of who we are, and we obey because of who God is. Thirdly, we obey because of who God is to us. I am the Lord, your God. Not just a God. We would still have to obey him if he'd have said, I am the God, obey me. But God says, I am the Lord, your God. And we saw in chapter 19 that God said to Israel, you are my treasured possession. Same language used to the church in 1 Peter 2. So this is not a God of raw, unbridled power. He's not a tyrant. In Christ, God is for us, not against us. He is our God. We are his people. Of course we obey this God because of who he is and who he is for us. Fourthly, we obey because of where we are. And think about where the Israelites are and where they are not, where the Ten Commandments are given. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. They were free. The Decalogue is not a tool for ordering slaves around. It is a word to former slaves how they live in freedom. God did not come to the Israelites as slaves in Egypt and say, I have heard your cry, chapter 2. I have heard your groaning. I have ten commandments. Let's have a shot at it for six months and see how we're doing. And if you're making good progress, we can talk about some plagues. And we'll give you six more months and see how you're doing with the commandments and now the plagues. And if you really are obedient, then I will set you free. Okay, deal? Should we shake on it? That's not what God did. That's not what God did. He unilaterally came by his sovereign power and he saved them. They crossed the Red Sea. God set them free from Egypt. And now as free people no longer in Egypt, God says, this is how I want you to live. Because Moses stood before Pharaoh and did not say, just say, like I've said before, like Charlton Heston said, let my people go. No, God said on, Moses said on behalf of God, let my people go that they may go into the wilderness and may worship me. The biblical definition of freedom is not doing what you want. Sorry, I hate to break it to you. It's not doing what you want. The biblical definition of freedom is enjoying the benefits of doing what you should. That's what it means to be free. So we often think about the Ten Commandments as something constraining us to some kind of servitude or bondage. That God is stealing from me my joy. What do you mean I can't, you know? It's, and that's not why God gives the Ten Commandments. John 8, verse 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. John 10, verse 10, I, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And 1 John 5, verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burden, burdensome. 
There is a sense if you try and live under the law as your righteousness, they're crushing, yes. But born again by the Holy Spirit as children of God, John says these commandments are not meant to be burdensome. God is not trying to crush you with red tape and regulations. He gives us ten commandments, not prison bars. He gives us ten commandments, the Decalogue, not prison bars. The ten commandments are not there to imprison me, but I may move about safely. They're not given to a slave people to be free, but given to a free people that they may not be slaves. And finally, why do we obey the Ten Commandments? Not only because of who we are, not only because of who God is, not only because of who God is for us, not only of where we are, because of what he has done. Because of what he has done. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I did something. Our belief in God's law, our belief in the Ten Commandments is rooted in history. I would like to think that a fair-minded atheist or an agnostic who may well think, I do not like the Ten Commandments, would at least grant that we base our moral code on historical facts. Or at the very least would grant, I see these people were set free and you think that God did it and therefore God has a right to tell us what to do. We're making factual claims and an appeal to a higher authority that transcends my own sense of right and wrong or the supposed bonkers wisdom of the internet. And even if someone said, I don't like the Ten Commandments, I hope they would grant that we are trying to base our moral code on something outside of ourselves. Not just look deeper and deeper into our own hearts to find what we think is right or wrong. No, we submit to the God who has done so much for us. We don't submit to the internet, we do not. We don't submit to a bunch of people that came up with the law of Boaty McBoatface. God did something in history and we are saying we need to listen to this God. God sent his son, he called him Jesus. And note against the law is coming after the good news of deliverance. In one way, law leads to gospel because the law shows us our sin and then prepares us for the good news that Christ has done it all. But in a redemptive historical sense, gospel leads to law. The good news of redemption from Egypt leads to the good news of this law from on high. Salvation isn't the reward for obedience. Salvation is the reason for obedience. And if you have the first sentence that salvation is a reward for obedience, then you're a legalist. And it's a false religion. But if you do not have the second sentence, salvation is the reason for obedience, you're an antinomian. Salvation is the reason we obey. 
Jesus did not say, if you obey my commandments, I will love you. But Jesus Christ did say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. All of our doing is because of what he has done for us. All of our doing is because of what he has done for us. So as we move through the Ten Commandments in the coming weeks, it's not in an effort to pull our socks up and prove our worth to God. No, it is in response to what he has done for us in sending his beloved son who died on the cross. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death that we deserve to die. And praise the Lord, the tomb is empty. And he ever lives to intercede for us. And we'll see time and time that we fall short. And we'll see how the Ten Commandments cut us to the quick. And then we'll see, because the Ten Commandments should challenge us. And it, I can't coast through them. My friends know I can't coast through the Bible and say, I've got it all off pat. I don't. There are things that I need to challenge myself on and say, well, ha why have I not done that? No, the Ten Commandments will cut us to the quick. They expose our failings. They will lead us to repentance. They will show us sins that we were unaware of. But God gives them as good news so that we might know how to live as children of God, as his precious people, as his obedient people, who say, God, you have loved me. And as an expression of my love for you and for my neighbour, I will follow your words. May the Lord bless the word for his glory and for our eternal good. Amen.